Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. We have something rather mysterious for you today. We are talking about the poisonous solicitor that may have inspired Agatha Christie. To talk me through this tantalising topic is Stephen Bates, a history graduate of New College, Oxford, a journalist for the BBC, The Telegraph, The Mail and The Guardian. He is the author of a fascinating and I have to say beautifully written book entitled The Poisonous Solicitor. I've been reading it recently. I've been absolutely gripped by it. Stephen, welcome to History Hack. How are you doing? I'm fine, Zach. Uh, How nice to speak to you and thank you for that fabulous encomium. It's my pleasure. Uh, great books get high praise. You know, that's the principle of History Hack. Um, we're going to dive straight in because, you know, it's it's a great story. And I think it's important that we start with the victim. And I put victim in inverted commas because that's a little kind of teaser um, for our listeners in terms of where this story may or may not go. Catherine Armstrong. Who was she? Tell us about her life and her family. Catherine Armstrong, who's the person at the centre of this case, um, was the wife of a solicitor, a country solicitor called Herbert Armstrong, who was um, based in Hay-on-Wye, right on the Welsh border with Herefordshire. And they'd been married for about 14 or 15 years, uh, had three children, And she took ill and died. It was a fairly long, drawn out and slow process, one way or another, um, early in 1921. And her death was recorded as natural causes, um, gastritis, neuritis, that's sort of uh, a kidney inflammation. Um, And life went back to normal. Her widow, Herbert, um, 
went back to work. And about 10 months later, there were suddenly suspicions raised about what had happened to her. And uh, this was largely because Herbert fell out with the rival solicitor in this little country town. Um, and the solicitor's name, Oswald Martin, um, he was a rather pushy young man who had just moved into the town and married the daughter of the local chemist who suddenly thought, hello, um, I've been supplying Herbert Armstrong with quite a lot of arsenic in the last few years. Uh, arsenic was terribly easily available in those days. You could buy quite a lot of it uh, over the counter in a chemist's shop, so long as you signed a poisons re register. And people did this because they were putting arsenic in diluted form in weed killer uh, and also to kill vermin. Uh, so it was uh, pretty readily available. And this chemist suddenly uh, came up with the idea that um, Mrs. Armstrong might have been poisoned. Uh, and this arose because Martin had attended a tea party with Armstrong a few weeks earlier. And after having some uh, scones and uh, currant loaf and a cup of tea, uh, he'd gone home and subsequently felt very ill. Um, and the chemist and the young solicitor and the local GP who treated Catherine Armstrong uh, decided this was terribly suspicious and that maybe uh, uh, Armstrong was running around poisoning people in the locality. And they persuaded the Home Office to investigate. Poor old Catherine's body was dug up and rather a lot of arsenic was found inside it. And uh, there have been traces, too, in um, the specimen that uh, young Oswald Martin had provided. And these suspicions all gelled into a supposition that Herbert Armstrong, far from being an upright pillar of the community, local solicitor, clerk to the magistrates, leading local Freemason, uh, reader at uh, the local church, uh, was actually starting to poison people. And he was arrested uh, and put on trial. And within a few months, after a sensational trial, um, he was found guilty in 48 minutes by a jury who uh, were considering the case and executed uh, at the end of May 1922. So the book is coming out exactly 100 years after the case. And um, as you can tell from that sort of fairly rough resume, the, um, the story is ripe with the sorts of coincidences, the sorts of social milieu that um, writers like Agatha Christie and Dorothy Sayers and Marjorie Allingham were all starting to write about. And we know that uh, the case was fascinating to them and indeed was, uh, was listed in certainly in several of the books that they, they wrote. Armstrong's name was uh, raised. I mean, you've given us loads to dive into there. Um, let's let's start pulling some of this apart. So arsenic, as you say, widely available. Lots of people have put forward theories about arsenic poisoning for various people. I mean, there's a whole thing about was Napoleon poisoned with arsenic? Clue folks, no, he wasn't. Um, 
but it's based on the fact that when they tested strands of his hair, they found significant levels of arsenic. The trouble is when they tested George III's hair for arsenic, they actually found higher levels of arsenic in his hair. It was just something that had been absorbed over time. So when we talk about arsenic being found in Catherine's body, how how much are we talking about? Are we talking about a substantial proportion of arsenic or are we talking about something that would actually have been fairly ordinary for the time? Uh, well, you don't have to eat or ingest a lot of arsenic for it to be fatal, although it was available uh, over the counter and although it was in an awful lot of products um, uh, in the Victorian and Edwardian era in wallpaper and goodness knows what else. Um, it was a white powder that could kill you with very little of it used. Um, three grains of arsenic was enough to knock over someone in fairly good health. Um, and three grains, to translate it into sort of modern terms, was about the same as half a tablet of paracetamol. It was a very small overall amount. But the pathologists and the analysts who examined um, Catherine's body and uh, uh, the specimens that were taken out of it um, said it was a huge amount of arsenic. And uh, uh, that conv certainly convinced the jury. Um, so it wasn't a huge amount. Um, uh, Oswald Martin, who was a fairly fit and fairly young man, um, was found to have about a third of a grain of arsenic in his urine, um, which sounds almost infinitesimal, but it was regarded as enough to um, put him almost at death's door and, um, uh, and to make him very ill indeed. Whether it was actually arsenic which caused it, because um, he'd taken things like bismuth, which... Um, contains arsenic or con certainly in those days contained arsenic was a was another matter which wasn't really very closely considered they assumed that um because he had arsenic um in his body or had had arsenic in his body um then it must have been placed there as a poison by armstrong that wasn't necessarily the case there are some curious suppositions all the way through this case aren't there let's rewind a little bit and discuss herbert armstrong in more detail what do we know about his life prior to this whole case blowing up and um what was the marriage like there is there any indication that this was an unhappy marriage prior to this supposed poisoning incident no quite the reverse um all the people who knew them in hay on Wai and uh, their personal friends all thought that herbert and catherine were very happily married and uh they were astonished and, in many cases, refused to believe that he could have murdered her, uh, even after he was found guilty. Um, Herbert Armstrong was an interesting character. He was a very small chap, um, very slight, um, a bit of a, 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 a turkey cock. He was um, he, he liked to wax the ends of his moustaches in the um, fashionable way of the Edwardian era. Um, he and he wore gold pince-nez um, on his uh, uh, instead of spectacles, um, and he had bright blue eyes, which were regarded as terribly suspicious because a number of murderers seemed to have bright blue eyes. Um, but he was an inoffensive little man. He was uh, he, he he was polite. He was courteous. He was 
friendly. He was approachable. Um, and he'd served in the war, apart from anything else. He'd been a, a major in the war. He liked his military title. So he was always known as Major Armstrong, even though he'd only ever been in the Territorial Army. Um, and he hadn't actually fought in the First World War. He'd been an adjutant behind the lines uh, doing paperwork and uh, ordering supplies and that sort of thing. But there he was. He'd, uh, he had served his king and country. Um, he was a respectable figure. And it was, the local gossip was that um, he was a bit henpecked by, uh, by his wife. She tended to order him about in public a little bit. Come along, Herbert, it's time for your bath, that sort of thing. And um, when offered wine at a dinner party, Herbert doesn't take wine, all that sort of thing. But he seemed absolutely devoted to her. He was very conscious that um, she was a little bit of an invalid and uh, he made sure that she didn't sit in a draft and all that. And uh, everyone, for all they knew, um, it had been a terrible, tragic loss to him when she died. So, I mean, this is a, a reason for confusion, isn't it? So you've got what on the surface, of course, seems like a, a very happy uh, marriage. Obviously, that it goes without saying that what happens behind closed doors is a, can be another story. But initially, her death is passed off as heart disease, wasn't it? So uh, does anybody at any point turn around and sort of consider, well, why did we think it was heart disease? And now suddenly we're coming up with this diagnosis of arsenic. Are the is the is there likely to be a, a crossover between the two? I'm not a medical person, so I I don't know. But you'd think the oh, symptoms the, might be different. The, well, the um, the symptoms uh, are not the same, but they can be confused. Um, uh, what happened after the end of the First World War, when things were getting back together, and uh, uh, Herbert was back in Hay on Wye, back in his office. Um, was that Catherine uh, got more and more depressed. We would say depressed now. They didn't particularly say that in those days. Um, and somewhat unbalanced in the uh, eyes of uh, people around her. She, she got very um, paranoid and she got uh, terribly worried uh, that um, she was being a bad wife and that... Uh, she was undermining her husband. She thought she was um, stealing from the local tradespeople. She thought when she could hear um, farm labourers in the fields outside that they were coming to get her. Um, so she got quite uh, uh, unbalanced and very depressed and in a highly nervous state. She was also very worried. She'd been a very keen piano player and she was worried that um, her nerves were affecting her ability to play the piano. So she got more and more difficult to live with in the months after the First World War. And eventually, uh, Herbert, uh, in consultation with uh, Catherine's sister uh, and the doctor, the local GP, um, decided that she ought to spend time in uh, an asylum uh, so that she could be properly treated and she was taken off in the summer of 1920 to a, a, the Barnwood Asylum, which is in Gloucester, about 50 or 60 miles away from Hay. And uh, there they treated her um, and gave her medicine, some of which contained traces of arsenic. 
Um, Herbert was very anxious to get her home, and this was regarded by the prosecution later as terribly suspicious because he wanted to complete her poisoning. Actually, it was perfectly explicable that um, he, uh, he just wanted his wife back home and uh, back to normal life. And so after six months, he went and got her and she was released by the asylum. Um, and thereafter, her delusions got worse and she got more and more sick and she went into a decline. Um, eventually, she couldn't get out of bed. And within a month or so of getting home from the asylum, uh, she, uh, she died. Um, she'd been nursed. The doctor had been to see her on a regular at least daily basis for the last few days of her life. Um, and Herbert had been there. Um, so it was regarded as a, as a terribly sad case, but a, a case of illness which may have been a bit psychosomatic to start with, but which was, um, was essentially something which had a physical nervous cause, uh, uh, neuritis being a disease of the nerves uh, rather than a mental disease. And uh, in fact, on the death certificate, uh, Dr. Hinks, the local GP who signed the certificate, said, well, we don't need to mention that she's been in an asylum, do we? And uh, they agreed that was utterly unnecessary. So uh, there were, um, I think, uh, I, I'm slightly hesitant in saying this, but there were possible clues that she was in such a depressed state that she might have been suicidal. Um, she allegedly asked the housekeeper one day if she threw herself out of an upper floor window, she would kill herself. And she also allegedly said to her young teenage daughter, um, I've done something so terrible. I've, I've, I've been taking medicines and, um, um, you know, I think it's going to be terrible for your father if he finds out. This was, these statements were later rather brushed under the carpet, but may have been indicative that she wanted to commit suicide in her depressed state. Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Um, there were some other clues that suggested that she wanted to live, that her very last statement to her nurse on the morning she died was, I'm not going to die, am I, because I have everything to live for. So that was the that was the background. No one thought it was suspicious um, until much later, until uh, the uh, illness that um, the rival solicitor suffered. And that's the point at which people drew two and two together and maybe made four, maybe made five or maybe made six. Let's talk about this. Um other solicitor do we know much about him and i mean you talk about how he was quite a sort of pushy individual shall we say just just give us a little bit of a flavor of his background and you know the role that he plays within this in terms of driving being a, a driving force behind what follows when it comes to the trial and so on yeah, Oswald Martin um, turned up in uh, Hay-on-Wye at the end of the war, after the end of the war. He had actually been a soldier in the war. He'd been in the other ranks um, and he'd fought in the trenches and been rather badly wounded in the, in the trenches in 1917. Um, so 
Uh, he had rather stronger a war record than Major Armstrong across the road had. Um, but he was, apart from being quite a lot younger than Armstrong, he was quite pushy. And things were quite difficult in Hay-on-Wai after the war. Um, it's sometimes forgotten. Uh, we know now about, obviously, all the casualties of the First World War and the great flu epidemic which followed it. Um, what's less well known, perhaps, to general readers is that um, there was a great economic uh, crisis following the war, um, rises in prices, um, uh, increase in the sales of land uh, as, uh, uh, as uh, uh, people found they were getting uh, into uh, financial difficulties. A lot of landowners had lost their sons in the war. Uh, the young subalterns who led their men over the front uh, and um, were, se were selling up. And Oswald Martin uh, made quite a push for the uh, tenants of uh, the local estates around Hay-on-Wye. As the owners were selling up, the tenants wanted to buy their farms. And uh, Martin basically told them that I'm your man, I will represent you. Armstrong, much longer established in the town, was representing the vendors of the estates, the owners. Um, and they got into difficulties about a particular estate sale where, where there was a delay in finalising the sale. Um, and this was a cause of considerable contention between them. As I say, Martin, having arrived in Hay-on-Wai, had uh, married... Uh, the daughter of the local chemist, um, who didn't like Armstrong, uh, partly because Armstrong was regarded as rather posh and rather supercilious to tradesmen. Um, uh, uh, and Martin uh, rather bought into that, I think. And so there was a tension between them. And the famous tea party, which happened, um, was almost an example of the sort of social gap between them because uh, Martin said that this was one of the crucial parts of uh, the case against Armstrong, that during the course of their tea party in Armstrong's lounge, uh, the major had handed him a scone uh, in his fingers saying, excuse fingers, as he passed it over. And Armstrong's side said, well, that was the sort of thing a parvenu um, chap from the ranks might say, but Major Armstrong wouldn't do that. He, he would pass him the scorn on a plate uh, if he did it at all. Um, but skews fingers has come down as the great phrase from the whole trial. Well, if people know anything about Armstrong, it's skews fingers. I've got a friend who lives near Hay on Wye. When I said I was researching a book on Major Armstrong, that was the first thing he said, ah, skews fingers. And, of course, that was a fairly damning uh, phrase which resounded around the, uh, the court at the time. They, Martin and Armstrong clearly didn't like each other very much. Um, and whether uh, Martin was actually poisoned or just had a bad tummy ache, which is perfectly possible as well. Um, no one will ever know now. Was there anyone else at this tea party who suddenly developed some kind of 
illness you know was was this presumably this was something that was picked up at the trial you know were there any other indications of people suffering ill health uh not at the tea party it was just the major and uh, oswald martin present although they were served everyone who uh, had, was from that sort of social professional background in those days had uh, maid servants they were served by the maid servant and the tea was prepared by um uh, the housemaid and um that was all about seemingly above board um there was an, a strange incident a few weeks before which um played a little part in the trial um Oswald Martin and his wife had recently moved into a, ha a new home and out of the blue they received a, a box of chocolates sent anonymously through the post and uh, they ate one or two and they were fine and then um, Oswald Martin's sisters and their husbands came for the weekend to see the new house and after dinner on the Saturday night they um, tucked into the chocolates and one of the sisters got very seriously ill and she was ill for a number of days and afterwards um uh oswald martin's father-in-law the chemist took a close look at the box of chocolates and pointed to the fact that there's some white powder leaking from a couple of the uneaten chocolates and that was analysed and found to be arsenic as well. So someone had tampered with the box of chocolates and a great deal was made of this at the committal proceedings. The trouble was that they couldn't tie the chocolates to Armstrong. There was, they, the Martins had got rid of the, um, the wrapping around it with the address written on it. Um, and there was no... Uh, indication that he'd bought any chocolates or been anywhere where the chocolates were being sold locally. Uh, and so the chocolates floated like a, a cloud above the, above the trial. Everyone knew about them because they'd been raised in the committal proceedings, but they weren't actually part of the final trial because it couldn't be proved that Armstrong had had anything to do with them. And uh, maybe he did, maybe he didn't. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Interesting. Um, what a, a peculiar sort of set of circumstances that lead to all of this happening. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, 
and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Why did this cause such a stir in the press? Because it absolutely did, and that's something that comes across quite clearly in your book. Was it fed do you think by the rise of the murder mystery novel or was there a morbid fascination with murders during this period? Well, there was a lot of fascination with murders as there still is in the, in the media. Of course, in those days, it was only uh, newspapers. They didn't have television. Uh, the BBC would be getting started later in the year. So they didn't have radio broadcasts either. It was just newspapers and uh, newspapers newspapers had a fascination, as did the public, uh, and of course, one fed the other, um, with uh, the idea of murder and the absolute, um, uh, the absolute uh, drama of fighting for a man's life. The fact that uh, you could put a man on, on a charge of murder if he was convicted within three weeks, he would be dead. It was a very quick process in those days. And so not only was it uh, incredibly stressful for the barristers who defended and prosecuted these cases, um, but it was a very vivid and livid form of uh, theatre for the newspaper reading public. You, you, it, was a, it was almost like a sporting contest, which... Uh, might end with acquittal, um, as it sometimes did, or might end with uh, the execution of uh, the person in the dock. And so that sort of cliffhanger um, event uh, uh, made the coverage of uh, murder trials in this period um, very uh very comprehensive newspapers devoted a huge amount of space to it. I mean, I worked for The Guardian for 22 years, and obviously um, during that time, there were an awful lot of um, serious cases, Harold Shipman, people like that. Um, and a, a daily report of a trial of someone like Shipman would have been maybe 1,200 words at the very most. That's about a page of the modern newspaper. Uh, the newspaper accounts of Harold uh, Herbert Armstrong's trial took up five, six, seven, eight thousand words a day. I mean, and of course, in those days, broadsheet newspapers much more tightly and compactly printed many fewer illustrations. They did have illustrations. They did have photographs, but they weren't. Uh, particularly um, vivid photographs. They were sort of head and shoulders things. So if you were reading about the trial, you were reading a very densely packed, very long account every day. The local paper in, uh, in Hereford, where the trial was held, the Hereford Times, which still publishes, um, brought out a special edition every day of the trial, uh, eight pages, uh, entirely devoted to the trial. So to all intents and purposes, they were producing a verbatim account every day. And it was on sale for a penny outside the court within half an hour of the day's proceedings finishing. I mean, it's a 
as an old journalist, I'm full, fully impressed by uh, uh, the speed of um, their work and how assiduous they were. Um, so that was the sort of nuts and bolts of the thing. The Armstrong case had um, all those strange little quirks and ingredients from the skews fingers um, to the idea of two professional men in a little enclosed rural community at daggers drawn, local gossip, um, twists and turns, poisoned chocolates, strange tea party, uh, all those sorts of local rivalries coming into play. And uh, it was so unusual, partly because he was, it was a middle-class thing that was going on. And it fed directly into the um, modern uh, detective story genre, which was just being developed after the First World War um, by people like Agatha Christie. Her first book um, uh, had just come out. Uh, Dorothy Sayers was writing her first book. And there were lots and lots of these detective books coming out. Um, and they all had... If not, a, if not the same format, a similar format. They all involved murder um, because it was such a striking crime. They all involved uh, middle-class people. You didn't get um, so, so many murders in, in print uh, from the, the working classes or the villainous classes um, because... Uh, People like Christie were writing for a middle-class market. And uh, so the Armstrong case uh, was a true case, a true crime case in a, a, at a time uh, when the genre of the murder thriller detective story was becoming incredibly popular. So the two fed, uh, fed into each other. I'm sorry, I'm going on a bit, aren't I? No, not at all. Our listeners are, are here to, to listen to you. I'm curious about wider impact of this, because you mentioned in the book that it came off the back of a similar case of suspected poisoning, which had actually been handled quite sloppily. So to what extent did that feed into the way in which that this case was handled? But equally, in terms of the wider impact of the Armstrong case, do we have a, a legacy that comes off of it? Yes, I think we do. The, the case you're talking about was of uh, another solicitor in Wales called Harold Greenwood, who lived further into Wales, down on the uh, Carmarthenshire coast at Kidwelly. And his wife had died under fairly surprising circumstances rather suddenly, this was in um, 1919, so only a couple of years before uh, the Armstrong case. And the circumstances were relatively similar in that his wife, um, Harold Greenwood's wife, who was uh, the rich partner in the partnership, she was a, a daughter of the man who founded the Bowater paper manufacturing business, her, uh, uh, Harold was um, not very, not very successful, not very well liked uh, solicitor um, uh, in the nearby town uh, next to Kidwelly. Um, 
and she got up perfectly normally one day, had a Sunday lunch, sat in the garden, and as the evening drew on, suddenly became very sick, and the local doctor was called, um, was rather confused, uh, and wasn't quite sure what was happening, was sure that she was fine, and then she died. And the police uh, didn't take any particular notice of this because the death certificate said it was natural causes, just like Armstrong a few months later. Uh, but there was a lot of local gossip, not least because of the way uh, Harold Greenwood uh, behaved after his wife died. This is a sort of very religious um, uh, church community, church orientated community. And within months of the death, he proposed not to one potential uh, new wife, but to two. And he jilted one and then married the other rather precipitously. And of course, that set the uh, tongues wagging in, in Kidwelly because um, that's not the way you were supposed to behave. You were supposed to be in mourning for at least a year before you even thought of getting married again. And he was a fairly racy character and he was regarded as a bit of a bad hat. And eventually the police cranked up an investigation. They exhumed the body. They found arsenic inside it. And eventually they got round to uh, prosecuting Greenwood and he was put on trial. And that was a very big trial too, way, way down in the depths of uh, Wales. And... He had the good fortune to have Edward Marshall Hall, the great defender, barrister of the time, who was one of the last of the great Victorian ranting barristers, uh, who turned up and turned the trial into almost a circus, really. I mean, he's shouting at the witnesses, shouting at the judge, um, tackling, uh, tackling, uh, the rather befuddled ancient doctor um, uh, about what he'd exactly uh, prescribed uh, to Mrs. Greenwood on the evening of her death. He couldn't quite remember, but he thought it might be morphia. And if he'd prescribed morphia to her, then she would certainly have died very quickly. Then he thought it might have been something else like bismuth, uh, which wouldn't have had the same effect at all, would have helped her stomach. But he wasn't quite sure. And the two were easily confused because they're both white powder. And anyway, one way or another, um, Marshall Hall um, blustered and bamboozled the jury into uh, acquitting Greenwood. Now, uh, this was regarded as fairly sensational because it had been thought to be an open and shut case. And indeed, it probably was. Uh, he, Greenwood had the advantage that he had a slightly older daughter than Herbert Armstrong. She was in her early 20s and she gave evidence. And the key point about uh, the poisoning of uh, Mrs. Greenwood uh, was that they'd had Sunday lunch together, the family, and only she had uh, drunk some red wine. So the red wine must have been poisoned. Uh, and then the daughter stood up and gave evidence in court to say, no, she'd also had some red wine at that lunch and she'd been perfectly all right. Collapse of prosecution case. Um, and uh, uh, that was the key moment at which uh, uh, at which Greenwood got off. So 
uh, it had been a spectacular case. There had been an awful lot of publicity about it, an awful lot of um, uh, high-profile reporting of um, Marshall Hall's bluster and belligerence, and then this key sort of Perry Mason-like moment where the daughter gets the father off uh, with a single answer to cross-examination. Didn't do Greenwood any good, by the way. Um, he was drummed out of uh, Kidwelly, the local town, and had to go and live, uh, funnily enough, in Herefordshire, uh, where he didn't live all, all that long. He'd been absolutely ruined by the case and his reputation had been utterly destroyed. So the legacy of Greenwood was that uh, the police had been incredibly sloppy. They hadn't bothered to ask the daughter uh, anything. They hadn't examined her. They hadn't interviewed her. And then uh, the only time when uh, her, uh, her uh, answers were given were actually in the Crown Court at the trial. So um, it was regarded, certainly in London, uh, as a very sloppy case indeed, very badly handled by the police, could have been avoided. Um, and lo and behold, a few months later, there's another solicitor who's come along with um, arsenic uh, 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 allegations against him. Um, and clearly the judiciary and the director of public prosecutions and the police were determined that it shouldn't happen again, that there shouldn't be a, a, a sloppy investigation. And it was incredibly thorough, um, although proceeding all the time from the premise that Armstrong had poisoned his wife. Uh, and as we know, with miscarriages of justice, it's often the case that uh, the police decide on um, the guilty party and find the evidence to back up that supposition. Um, I'm not sure that entirely happened with the Armstrong case, but uh, uh, they were certainly out to get him. Yeah, you do get a sense of that from what you've said, that there there is this sort of almost jump from, well, we have this theory, so here's some evidence to fit that theory, as opposed to looking at some of the, the curious inconsistencies that arise and that you, you've talked about, which leads me nicely on to where I wanted to go next, because I don't want to give any spoilers about the outcome of the book, but you looked at this and you were unsettled by this story, I think it's fair to say. You, you weren't convinced. So what was it that made you want to re-examine this case? Well, I, um, I've been interested, like a lot of people, in true crime for a very long time, probably since reading the old uh, press reports back in the 60s when I was a small boy. Um, and the Armstrong case is, a, is an interesting case, inherently anyway. And there are two books uh, which have been written in the last 50 years or so, which take diametrically opposite views. One written in the mid-70s, which I happened to buy secondhand years ago, um, which assumes from the police evidence and the police's point of view that Armstrong was a psychopathic killer. And then 20 years later in the 1990s, there came another book um, by a solicitor who actually moved to Hay-on-Wye, coincidentally, 
found himself working out of the same office as uh, Herbert Armstrong, sitting at his desk, sitting in his chair, um, and eventually even moved into the Armstrong's old house um, and getting increasingly fascinated by the story. And he was convinced that Armstrong was not a killer. He was um, wrongly accused, wrongly convicted. And it's a, a it's a, an interesting book if you're interested in that sort of thing, because it's a very loyally book. It's the case for the defense. And as such, it's um, it's impressive and uh, uh, and strong. And at the very least, it uh, seems to show that Armstrong didn't get a fair trial. Um, uh, which uh, seems to me to be transparently true. Everyone was out to get him, especially the judge, who at the trial more or less um, declined to hear the evidence in, of the defence, dismissed it entirely, um, and uh, not quite bullied, but um, was very persuasive to the jury that um, there was no defence case at all. He, he more or less didn't mention it. Um, so there were these two uh, diametrically opposed uh, uh, views of the trial. And with the uh, circumstances of, um, uh, of the twists and turns of it, I thought it was worth doing again, particularly as the centenary was coming up. Um, the book is published on what would have been the first or second day of the trial. I'm actually at the Hay on Wai Festival, which you know is a very big uh, literary festival these days. Wasn't, of course, thought of in those days. But I'm leading a walking tour around the sites of uh, the Armstrong case, um, all of which are still there and virtually unchanged because it's a little market town and you know nothing's been knocked down or, or changed too much. And uh, the walking tour, it so happens, is on the morning of the anniversary of uh, Armstrong's execution. So it will have a particular poignancy. Um, uh, and so those two books together, uh, plus the fascination of the case, did he, didn't he, who done it, if he didn't do it, um, uh, uh, what impelled me to uh, give it a new look. And how did you go about piecing it all together in order to re-examine it? What were the challenges of trying to reopen such an old case? Well, it was, uh, <laughs> it was quite difficult because, uh, of course, with the pandemic, everything was in lockdown. Uh, so I had to do an awful lot of research um, from uh, books uh, acquired during, during lockdown um, and also from online sources. I was very lucky having worked at The Guardian for many years, I had access to their online archive of, um, uh, of editions of the paper and also uh, the Times and one or two others. Uh, and my deadline for writing it was the end of last May. And if you remember, uh, the uh, restrictions were lifted in the middle of May last year. So I had a basically a two week window of opportunity. I'd already written most of the book uh, because I had to, um, but two weeks in which I could uh, get out and about, go to the National Archives at Kew, which have four or five boxes of documents from the case, uh, statements, uh, transcripts, 
letters, uh, uh, internal memoranda, those sorts of things. But also, crucially, to go down to Hay-on-Wye, wander around, the uh, solicitors who occupied the office uh, let me in to see uh, Armstrong's desk in situ, still 100 years on. And uh, uh, he was represented at the trial by a solicitor's firm in Hereford, um, uh, which had been started by a man called Tom Matthews, who became his solicitor for the trial. Um, and uh, the Matthews firm is still in, in Hereford. And I wrote to them and said, do you have any, by any chance, do you have any documentation left 100 years on? And they produced five large boxes absolutely stuffed with documentation from the trial. Um, uh, it, it, hundreds and hundreds of bits of paper, I can't tell you. It was, uh, it was, uh, it was a real goldmine because there was not just things like newspaper cuttings, uh, but uh, solicitors' letters, um, uh, letters from cranks and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, people who thought they had a solution to the trial at the time, and um, things like negotiations with newspapers that wanted to serialise or buy up his confession. Um, uh, and most poignantly of all, uh, letters from his children, uh, which had been in, this, in these boxes for a hundred years. And I can't tell you how moving those were because on New Year's Eve, 1921, Herbert Armstrong thought he was having a normal day. It was a Saturday. He was going to go into the office, do some correspondence, um, and then come back and do some gardening in the afternoon. Last day of the year, he had breakfast with his children and left, went down into his office. The police arrived. He was arrested. He never went back to his home. He never saw his children again. So the only means of, con of, uh, of being in touch with him was for them to write letters. And after he died, uh, you know, some of the reports said, well, he'd been a rather harsh father. He was obviously a dangerous man. He'd, uh, he'd uh, been killing people and all the rest of it. And then you get these terribly sad letters from his daughter saying, I love you, Daddy, you know, all this sort of thing. We're, we're doing all right here. And you think this little girl is never going to see her dad again. And you don't even know whether he was ever uh, shown these, these letters. There was a point when um, during the trial, uh, there was a possibility that uh, Armstrong's uh, legal team would do the same as Greenwood's had and produce the oldest daughter uh, to give evidence on her daddy's behalf. And they decided against it. Um, and it might very well not have made any difference. But you just get this sense of this child anxious to do everything she could for her daddy and knowing that um, it just wasn't going to happen. And the three children had um, a very difficult time, obviously, afterwards. The uh, mother's sister really didn't want anything to do with them, and they were put into care, where 
um, certainly for as far as the youngest daughter, who was only about five or six, was concerned, meant that she was fostered out with a family who didn't allow any mention of her parents. Every photograph was destroyed. Uh, even the Bible that she'd been given by her father on her christening had the page which she had signed torn out. There was nothing, nothing to give her any clue as to what had happened to her parents. She was an orphan. And the story goes, and I find it hard to credit, but it's, um, it's, um, it's a story which has been repeated, that she didn't find out about what had happened to her parents until as a teenager, 10 or 12 years later, she was taken on a school trip to Madame Tussauds and came face to face with his effigy in the Chamber of Horrors. Imagine finding out your daddy in those circumstances. And of course it marked her whole life. Now she lived into the 21st century as an old lady and she collaborated with the solicitor, Martin Beals, who, as I say, wrote this book um, uh, in an attempt to exonerate Major Armstrong. And one just feels it is so poignant that um, she told him that her whole life she'd had to be very careful about what she said to people, very careful about divulging this terrible story, this background, um, terrible thoughts about what it might mean to people she met, could she trust them, all the rest of it. And uh, I thought uh, she and her brother and sister were perhaps the true and deepest victims of this whole affair. It's a really sad and poignant note on which to end. This has been really interesting Stephen thank you so much for your time today folks the poisonous solicitor will be out by the time this uh, podcast airs you can find the link to the history hack bookstore where you can pick it up in the description below please do go and investigate it it is beautifully written utterly gripping uh, so congrats Stephen on putting the story together so well and thank you so much for your time today oh thank you Zach I've enjoyed speaking to you Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.